Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. I need 90 minutes. You knew I would ask for it. If you'll give it to me, we'll give you the world. In fact, in a moment, we're going to southern France. We'll be talking with Ken Temmerman from his vantage point. He can see what's going on in Europe, but in essence, around the world as well. We'll talk about geopolitical activities, and Ken will give us insight into all of these stories. By the way, you were probably thinking I would be located in temporary studios over in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, we were there at Grace Baptist Church last Sunday through Wednesday night. Had a great meeting. The people were so receptive to the prophetic word of God. Pastor was so kind. Staff is wonderful. In fact, on Wednesday night when we finished up the meeting, they suggested we ought to get out of Dodge. Because you might know Columbia, South Carolina is not too far away from the coast, in particular Myrtle Beach and also Charleston, South Carolina. Florence went into North Carolina, bounced back out in the ocean, going down the coast south, and it's probably going to hit either Myrtle Beach or Charleston, come across, and it would go probably right over Columbia. So uh, the suggestion was, let's call off the meeting. That's why we're back here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. May I just suggest uh, all of us that are involved in hearing what we're talking about today need to be praying for those people over there in North and South Carolina. Remember them in prayer, if you will, later today. Well, let's go to southern France. As I mentioned, Ken Timmerman standing by there. We're going to go through a number of issues. And Ken, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Russia holding the largest war exercise for many, many years. Since I think you said the early 80s, China has been invited to get involved. Even Mongolia is involved to some extent. Uh, but uh, they're using this, and I want you just to talk more, a little bit more about it. But the fact that uh, Russia is passing along information about their war activities in Syria. Just give us a detailed report what you're thinking about this. Well, this is all part of Putin's effort to modernize the conventional military forces of the Russian Federation, which had fallen into a pretty awful state of disrepair after the Cold War wound down. And remember, Russia has been involved on the ground in Syria since 2015. So now they've got about three years hard experience in the war. We've talked on the program of how the Russian military has released figures for the number of air sorties that they have flown, the number of bombs, the tonnage of bombs that they've dropped on uh, ISIS fighters and civilians as well. So the Russians have a great deal of experience from these three years. They've introduced many new weapon systems, and it's something that they are now with apparently to share with the Chinese. Putin has called President Xi, the Chinese president for life, his closest and most intimate friend. Mm. Uh, so clearly you see a revival of yeah. this Russia-China alliance that you haven't seen really since the 1950s, Jimmy. It's, it's extraordinary. It certainly is. Boy, that's an interesting bit of input you just gave us there. We talked also last week about the meeting between Turkey, Russia, and Iran. They're in Tehran, Iran, looking at Syria and trying to determine their future. However, Turkey has been reinforcing their military post in Idlib, where there's a big problem uh, there in uh, the western central part of Syria on the Turkish border. Turkey wanting to not go in there and wipe everybody out. 
And so what can we report that's happening at that situation? Well, this is one to keep our eyes on, because on the one hand, you see Turkey trying to cooperate with Russia and Iran uh, on Syria and other issues. And on the other hand, you see there are real lines of fracture, lines of confrontation between Turkey and Russia and Iran inside Syria. This week, the Turks sent a military convoy into Idlib province, which is just below the Turkish border, so it's south of the Turkish border, to reinforce what they're calling observation posts. Well, these are actually military bases that Turkey has set up inside Syria, and they're now trying to uh, reinforce those. That's a potentially very big deal as Turkey is warning the Syrian government and the Russians not to hit civilian targets and not to hit their favorite rebel groups. They claim to be supporting a, quote, moderate Islamic fundamentalist rebel group in northern Syria, and the Russians really don't make much distinction between al-Qaeda and the ISIS leftovers and other so-called moderate Islamic groups. They are all political Islamic groups, jihadi Islamic groups. All of them are committed to the armed struggle against the Syrian state, and all of them seek to impose Sharia law. So we could see, an, I don't want to say an open military confrontation between Turkey and Russia on the ground in Syria, but we could see rising tensions between them. And a lot of uh, harsh words and blustery rhetoric is especially from Erdogan of Turkey. You mentioned a phrase, a mouthful, really, a moderate Islamic fundamentalist. I don't know what that really means, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, it's funny how you have to twist yourself into a pretzel to <laughs> try to make moderates out of uh, these jihadi Muslim groups. But the Turks do it. Barack Obama tried to do it for yeah. many, many years. And there are a whole bunch of left-wing analysts in the United States and elsewhere around the world who continue to do it as well. It's pretending that reality doesn't exist. Yes, and that was a key point I wanted to pass along to our listeners when they hear the rest of the world, not us here at Prophecy Today, but the rest of the world talking about it. Well, talk to me about Vladimir Putin, who says he's going to push for a total victory in Syria, no matter who it harms. Well, right. The Russians have not been particularly concerned about civilian casualties. There are obviously varying estimates of the number of civilians who have been killed by Russian bombing runs from their air force. But the Russians don't seem to care, and nobody seems to be holding them accountable for the number of civilians they, they kill. Just think if the United States conducted a bombing run and 150 civilians were killed, uh, the whole world would be in an uproar. This, right. this happened many times in Afghanistan and in Iraq. When Russia does it, there seems to be silence. The U.N. does not sit in emergency session at the Security Council. Every humanitarian organization in the world does not go on to the airwaves and scream bloody murder and that Russia should be banned from the international community uh, and its president branded a, I don't know, a renegade to humanity. That's what they do when the United States has civilian casualties in military operations. They don't seem to care and they don't do it when Russia does. In the unstable war-torn country of Iraq, there's some activities going on politically. Two former prime ministers vying for the leadership role there. And Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, says he's pinning his hope on the cleric Mektada Sadar to help bring this thing all together. Is that good or is that bad? <laughs> well, it's 
pretty extraordinary. Five months after Iraq's election, they still don't have a government. Now, certainly not a government that has emerged from the elections. They have a caretaker government. And all of these different parties, all of these different forces, all of these outside interests, Turkey and Iran in particular, but also the United States, are jockeying for position, trying to advance their guy into the lead position. The Turks now getting involved, as you mentioned, backing uh, Muqtada Sadr, but even that is not a sure bet, because Sadr's own movement seems to be splitting, some of them going pro-Iran and some of them staying with Sadr, who's, who's carved out a more neutral position. This is a very hard one to call, Jimmy, because there's so many moving parts, so many parties. The Kurds, for example, have 60 members of the new Iraqi parliament. Those 60 parliament members belong to seven different parties. Mm. <laughs> and that's just the Kurds. <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about dozens and dozens of political parties, and each of those parties is split into factions, uh, and all of them are trying to get the best deal for themselves. Yes, indeed. When you put together a collaboration of all the political parties, sometimes it becomes very, very difficult. Hey, let me keep the focus on Turkey just a moment. Uh, their latest power grab has been their Navy wants to put a base up in Cyrus. I don't know if that's going to work at all, is it? Well, the, the Navy is very intent on doing this. Cyprus, remember, remains divided between the Turks and the Greeks. They have separate governments there. The Greek side of Cyprus is a part of the European Union and, and very close to NATO. The Turkish side, every now and then, creates all kinds of trouble. They're, they're trying to prevent the Greeks from signing a pipeline deal with Israel, because the Greek side of Cyprus and Israel share uh, interest in one of those offshore oil fields. I think the one they're talking about there is called Aphrodite. Of course, the Turks want to prevent the Greek Cypriots from exploiting that natural gas field and making the money from it, and from building that pipeline that would send both Israeli and Cypriot gas into uh, Western Europe. So the Turks once again, are playing a spoiler's role. They are trying to create instability, and they are behaving as has become their want, really, over the past three, four years, not as a NATO ally. We've got about 30 seconds, Ken. Talk to me this last week since we last talk. Everybody should have in America stopped to remember 9-11. Are we remembering 9-11, or are we actually forgetting about it? Well, I think an awful lot of people have forgot about it. Many young people have forgotten about it, people who were born just before, for example. Uh, but I tell you, I have had a tremendous experience working with the families of 9-11 victims, and I have watched children who were, you know, three, four, six, seven years old. I've watched them grow up with the knowledge of what happened to their father or their mother on 9-11. I can tell you, those families do not forget, and we continue to work. I work with the law firms trying to get money from Iran to satisfy the legal judgment against the state of Iran for their involvement in 9-11, we will not forget until we have full justice for those families. Absolutely. It's very personal with our broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. And he's a real personal friend to us, a great asset to this broadcast, helping us to understand current events. I'll bring up the prophetic aspect of those current events in a moment, but we have to understand first the political before we get to the prophetic. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll have another conversation next week. 
Thanks so much, Jimmy, and stay dry. Stay dry, absolutely. Hey, we're going to take a break right now. When we get back, we have David Dolan standing by with his Middle East News update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're here at Broadcast Central, you know, because I said Florence may come into Columbia, South Carolina. It's windy, it's rainy there, and we weren't sure how well we could do with a meeting on Sunday. So uh, we came back to Chattanooga. Beautiful here. Great to be able to contact you from Prophecy Today headquarters here, World International Headquarters. We promised David Dolan would come Mike's side. He's here at the broadcast table with me. Uh, David, a number of things I want to talk about remembering as well, but I would probably say the event on Wednesday, the most solemn of the Jewish holy days, Yom Kippur, is going to take place, and it will, of course, happen in Israel and across the Jewish world as well. Now, what I wanted to do, I'm going to have Steve Herzig of Friends of Israel get more in-depth about the biblical concept of Yom Kippur, Uh, but you've been there so many, many years, Uh, just Reflect. Uh, the people, I don't think, really understand how serious this holy day is for the Jewish people. But, I mean, the entire country shuts down, doesn't it? It does, Jimmy. And actually, uh, quite a few of my Gentile friends would join me and others in fasting during Yom Kippur, mainly because everybody was doing it. Most adults in the country do fast for the whole 25 hours, and most fast from water as well as food. The stores are all closed, there's no shopping, there's no entertainment, Uh, the streets are 
pretty empty. Now, in recent years, Jimmy, sadly, the Palestinians have kind of decided to make a little bit of noise on Yom Kippur. And so they've been driving around. They're not supposed to be. Their roadblocks are usually put up around the neighborhoods, not breaking any laws by doing that. It's just a custom that there's no traffic. But that's caused some problems and some fights and things. But generally speaking, people are praying, fasting. But, of course, it was on Yom Kippur in 1973. I remember it well, turning on the CBS radio news that I would later work for in the Middle East, announcing that Syria and Egypt had attacked Israel on that holy day. Sirens went off midday, and all the guys in the reserves uh, and uh, soldiers at home had to rush off to their bases and started eating some food. The fast was called off. So, of course, security remains a huge issue. They don't want to see any repeat of that this Yom Kippur, of course. Well, and we've remembered that for a moment. Let's also remember what happened on one of the dates of this last week, the 13th of September, and it was in 1993, 25 years ago, when at the White House in Washington, D.C., uh, there was uh, Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel, There was Bill Clinton, President of the United States, and Yasser Arafat, and they signed the Oslo Accords, a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinian people. I don't remember if you were there with us at the the government press office, but that day Judy and I went in to watch a live feed from Washington and that signing of the treaty. And I've got to remember and remind you that when that happened, Bill Clinton reached over behind Yitzhak Rabin and put his hand in the small of his back and pushed him to shake hands with Yasser Arafat, a sworn enemy. However, that peace treaty seemingly is not working, and that's understatement if I've ever used it. Well, sadly, that's the case, Jimmy. Indeed, the only parts that are still working are the security agreements, for the most part, are still working, i.e. the Palestinian Authority was set up along with the setup of the government, was a security setup, so they have a police force, uh, American-armed and trained mostly, and they did, of course, as you recall, turn against Israel in 2000 when the uprising broke out seven years after the signing of that uh, Oslo Accords, which really, from that point on, Jimmy, they were dead, when Yasser Arafat, the late Yasser Arafat, called upon his people to go out and riot, uh, called upon his security forces to turn their guns upon Israeli soldiers and civilians, and that happened. So since then, the trust has been gone. The Israelis no longer you know, believe that this is a, a lasting peace, uh, although they're glad that the security measures remain in place. But, Jimmy, it was the building of the wall, the security barrier under uh, mostly Benjamin Netanyahu, that has stopped most of the terror attacks and incursions from Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, into Israel proper. And that is a testimony that it works, but a testimony that Oslo did not work, that Israel felt later it had to build a security barrier all along the length of uh, Judea and Samaria. And basically, it's dead today, is it not? Well, uh, there are, again, still cooperations going on between Israeli security forces and Palestinian security forces. There is still coordination. They, you know, they do work together most of the time. In Bethlehem at Christmas, uh, tourists come in from Israel. The Palestinians then take over to ensure their security, whatever. And so that part has remained in place. But otherwise, it's not a peace treaty. 
the issue of Jerusalem still very much remains on the table, and many other issues, obviously, as well. And, of course, the rioting continues in Gaza. There were two Palestinians killed yesterday there. There were a bunch of incendiary devices were flown into Israel from Gaza. Uh, some landed on a kindergarten, an Israeli kindergarten nearby. Nobody was there at the time, of course, but because they have been keeping the kids inside because of these fires and that. Uh, some Palestinians were arrested for setting fire down near the Dead Sea to a nature reserve there. So the conflict continues, Jimmy, and uh, that's just a sad reality. Talk to me, if you will, David, since last we talked, 5779, the New Jewish Year, came into existence. And uh, if you will, is there real hope in the new year for the Jewish people? Or just give me a couple of comments as you project into this brand new year, 5779, for the Jewish people. Well, Jimmy, I watched just yesterday Israel television report on the new year and what people are expecting, and they interviewed several people, and the economy's great. Benjamin Netanyahu has never been more popular. If polls were held today, he would pick up six more seats in the Knesset, the, is the projections. So life is good on that level, but there's this trouble down in Gaza, but more than that, there's the threat of full war with Iran that we've been talking about for um, months now, really all year. And that continues, uh, you know, to be a real concern amongst Israeli people. And they know, they've been warned, if it comes, it will come in the form of rockets coming into Israeli towns and cities and schools and hospitals. Everything would, would be hit, the airport. But that's something that's definitely on everybody's mind and that they, that they dread. They're hoping it won't happen during the new year, but they're aware of the growing signs that it, uh, it well could. Uh, apart from that, Jimmy, though, life... Uh, goes on, and it, it, they've just announced that Tel Aviv will host the Eurovision contest next May. That's an international song contest, mainly European-based, because uh, one of their singers won it this year in Europe, so uh, they're looking forward to that for next year. But again, it takes two to make peace, just one to make war, and uh, Iran seems to be still very much on the warpath. And if you look at the Word of God, and I'll talk about this later when I take a look at the book, there is hope. The Messiah is on his way, and the Jewish people, God has a plan for them. That plan will be fulfilled. Well, uh, the prime minister speaking out of what President Trump's decision was this last week to close down the PLO offices there in Washington. Prime Minister, very pleased with that. Do you think that was a good move or a dangerous move? Well, it's a continuation of President Trump's uh, policy to look at not just the Palestinian-Israeli situation, but NATO and the contributions that countries are making to the budget there. And really, it's a financial view. And uh, in this case, of course, it was that the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, being the government side of the PLO, was taking U.S. taxpayer dollars and paying them out to terrorists, the families of terrorists that had, in some cases, killed Americans. And, of course, the Congress took this up. It was named after an American that was visiting Tel Aviv, who was killed in a terror attack several years ago. And it called upon a president, really, to stop funding of the PA until they stopped funding terror groups. Well, when, when Mahmoud Abbas announced earlier this year, we're not going to pay attention to that. That doesn't bother us. We're going to still send $20,000 to every family of our martyrs, Shahid in Arabic, our martyrs, they call them. Although they're, they're terrorists, and their families 
are going to be well set if one of their sons goes out, usually sons, sometimes a daughter, goes out and kills or their wife or their kids, and is ready. So the president just was fed up with that and said, we're not funding you until you stop all of this and other things as well. And the Israelis are actually very pleased with that, Jimmy. Not that they are pleased. <laughs> I mean, they're not pleased because they wish the peace process had worked. They wish the Palestinians weren't killing them anymore. They wish there were no terror groups. They wish Hamas hadn't seized Gaza after Israel boldly left and said, here, you know, take it. This youth demanding us to go. We're going. Here it is. And what are they doing? They're using it to attack Israel every day. So this is just a sad reality. Uh, the president recognizing that, and uh, hopefully the PLO, the Palestinians, will change their behavior as a result. But, you know, the hope is not a great one, frankly. Yes, I would agree with that. That was the voice of David Dolan. He's the man who covers the Middle East for us with his weekly update right here on Prophecy Today. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. God bless you, Jimmy. Thank you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, John Rood, he has a European Union update for us all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Once again, Prophecy Today presents the School of Prophets Conference, December 10th through the 13th at the Spring Hill Suites Hotel, along the shores of the beautiful Tennessee River in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. Join Dr. Jimmy DeYoung as he personally walks you through the Bible and helps you discover important prophetic passages from every book of the Old Testament. Dr. DeYoung will also look at the prophetic passages in the New Testament from the book of Acts right through the book of Jude. Dave James will present graphics and PowerPoint design with a special emphasis on teaching aids for pastors and Bible teachers. This course is great for pastors, teachers, secretaries, and IT professionals as you learn basic principles of graphic design, focusing on composition, color, typography, and imaging. These meetings are more intimate because they're smaller in nature. There will be time for Q&A with the teachers and fellowship with participants. For more information, call 423-821-3635. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I enjoy having an opportunity to talk to our broadcast partners. Every single time I have a conversation with them, I learn more details about the headlines that we are looking at. Now, we go to different parts of the world, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, to contact our broadcast partners, finding out all the in-depth story behind every headline, since the headlines seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And so it's great to have a conversation. Always enjoy talking with John Rood, who has lived many years actually in Brussels, Belgium, headquarters for the European Union. So he knows that area like the back of his hand. But in addition to that, he knows the players there. And often you'll hear that he's had a conversation with some of the personalities that we will be mentioning. That's the caliber of our broadcast partners, and so glad to have them available. 
I'm thrilled that we can present them to you. Be sure to tell a friend. They can go to our website. If you miss any of my conversations, simply go to prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now, having talked about them, let's bring John Rood to these microphones here at my broadcast table. And John, let's get underway. There's a very important headline that I want to ask you about. It says that the European Union is preparing a Brexit compromise, actually, to save Theresa May. What's that all about? Well, that does sound sort of an interesting twist, which, of course, is the pattern that we have. Much of these directions are sort of done backdoor deals. Sometimes there's even promises that are made to try to force certain outcomes, for example. Theresa May, of course, the prime minister in the, in the United Kingdom, is in a lot of hot water right now. She's more in the remain camp than the leave camp, and yet she's supposed to be the leader which uh, leads the United Kingdom through Brexit. She's really lacking some definitive leadership, and she's managed, which I imagine is quite a feat, to discourage the conservatives and the Labor Party. Hmm. So this, this type of indecision is the type of thing that the EU thrives on, and so it's actually, they apparently have given directives to their envoy, the uh, EU diplomat who's in charge of the negotiation, uh, Michel Barnier, and they're saying basically you have a mandate to do this deal. So to have a deal could very well just, just be a Band-Aid, just be a label. And, of course, you, uh, it's understood the motive for the EU is the future plans, having the weakness continue in the United Kingdom will be best for the European Union long term. And you can bet they have a whole dossier already of how this will come after Brexit to keep certain matters of control. Uh, John, do we have any idea how the European Union members are going to vote, or does that really matter? Well, the European Union is is a highly undemocratic system. And the only vote is for the European Parliament, and the next one is in May of 2019. And so it appears that some of the Eurosceptic parties, even anti-EU parties, are gaining greatly in the polls. So they have the process, the progression, if the Parliament only discusses what the European Commission gives them, And any decision they make is essentially treated as an opinion which goes to the EU Council. Now, with all of the Euroscepticism that's coming to the forefront, this is something where the United Kingdom deadline in March of 2019 to leave, and then only two months later is the European Union Parliament election, which is the only election in the entire system. Well, what will happen then is that people are going to perceive that the European Parliament election is, in a sense, a Brexit-style referendum. Are we going to vote for or against Europe in terms of European Union? And that seems to be already the case. So the system of the European Union, it overplayed its hand. It became way too political, became way too, you could even say secretive, but lacking transparency. And so it's bringing this shift, a radical shift in the European Union that will not stay in the way that we know it today. 
You might remember that last week、uh, John and I were talking along these similar lines, and I said, "Friends, don't let us get too deep in the grass." But this is information you need to know because of the fact that what goes down there with the United Kingdom as it relates to the European Union and the possibility of Britain withdrawing from the EU could、uh, cause a domino effect, and so this is. How we're looking at from the political perspective, how we may be seeing the setting up the stage for the prophetic scenario to unfold, and of course that would be the revival of the Roman Empire. All of it fits together. That's why we do the political. By the way,、uh, Juncker, who is the chairman of the Commission, he said the European Union is going to send an additional ten thousand. The soldiers over to the borders and try to update that situation. I mean,、uh, this、uh, immigration coming into the European Union is getting worse and worse and causing much more of a problem. Is it not? Yeah, the Commission President、uh, Jean Claude Juncker he gave his State of the Union address. We have to say State of the European Union address, and in this, it, it was his last because his commission will be up. And it was just a very lackadaisical approach. It's the same thing that we're always hearing. There's a call to be strong and to be unified, and very centralized. So they know that immigration issue is、uh, existential threat to the Euro- European Union. So essentially, they have expressed that they showed fault in dealing with immigration, and now the border. Guard, which is a、uh, organization called Frontex, it's the EU Border and Coast Guard agency. They're going to、uh, take from 1,600 personnel, raise it to 11,600.、Mm. So people might say, "Well, the EU now is, you know, really going to work on immigration." But notice, this is not the member states. This is the EU guards, and in the same breath, in the same speech. Juncker had said, "We will not militarize the European Union." So this is only an internal strengthening for self-preservation, and it's a, it's quite a large change adding ten thousand to a group that's only sixteen hundred. But the member states will still be dictated to. There's still this lack of democ- democracy, and they do not listen to the citizens overall. This is a last-ditch attempt. You know, it sounds exactly like the scenario that the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, is going to do to direct the revived Roman Empire. One hour with the beast, it says there in chapter seventeen of Revelation. One hour with the beast, these people will receive their power. Quite interesting. We look at politics with John Rood, and then we have to run over to the prophetic scenario. Hey, John, great. Information you give us. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. My pleasure, Jimmy. John Rood, excellent report on the European Union. We must be updated about what's happening politically in the European Union, so we can understand prophetically how they're going to be the foundation, at least the infrastructure, for the revived Roman Empire. 
There's a longtime friend that is one of our broadcast partners for many years. He was the key player for geopolitical activities, and then with his activities of writing, his work, his day job at the Pentagon, it kept him from being so regular with us, but we get him whenever we can. I'm talking about Colonel Bob McGinnis. As I said, a day job at the Pentagon. He is a writer. He's written many books. Bob, what's the latest book that you've written coming out soon? Well, Alliance of Evil, Jimmy, and it just came out, and it's about the New Dual Cold War, which I really think is a prelude to the end times. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk to you about, that dual Cold War. And before we get to that, though, uh, let's remind everybody what we talked about last time we were together, and that is the unbelievable mass military exercise that Russia is holding. They've invited China, Mongolia, to come and join with them, taking place there in Russia. Boy, this is the largest Russian exercise militarily they've had since the last Cold War. We'll get to the Cold War in a moment, but what about this mass military exercise? Yeah, Jimmy, uh, Vostok, which translates East 2018, is the the largest military exercise Russia has conducted since the end of the Cold War, which was in 1991, uh, they had over 300,000 of their own troops, uh, literally thousands of tanks. Interestingly, Defense News published satellite imagery of uh, many of the, the vehicles and the aircraft that were involved, and it's a mass of armored vehicles, thousands and thousands of tanks and so forth that were going to be part of a parade before Vladimir Putin and also uh, Chinese President Qing. You know, what's interesting here, of course, this is the first time in which we've seen the Russians and the Chinese exercising inside Russia, which is very significant. And in the fact, at the joint press conference, both of those presidents said, we're going to do this every year. Now, to me, that is a major indicator, one of which, quite frankly, I develop in some detail in Alliance of Evil, uh, an indicator of the new dual Cold War. You know, here we have, soon to be the most largest economy in the world, China. As they grow, they expand their military reach, because if you understand the People's Liberation Army, you understand they have a business part, and so when they... Uh, go into Greenland, or they go into Sri Lanka, or they go into Perth, Australia, all over the world, El Salvador and the like, they establish through what's called the, the Belt and Road Initiative, one of President Xi's initiatives, investing trillions of dollars across the globe in order to buy leverage and influence. And wherever they go, there's a military footprint. And so they're globalizing China's reach. You know, we thought it was bad when they were stealing our intellectual property, but now that they're not making any pretense about their global ambitions, this is something that the United States, I, I would argue, has been you know, silent about since the beginning of the war on terror in 2001. We, we kind of took a, a major confrontation holiday, and then all of a sudden we're waking up President Trump rightly publishes the national security strategy and national defense strategy that boldly declares that we're in a near-peer adversarial world today and we better wake up and make 
something of ourselves and be prepared for what may follow. Now, you're using this term, dual Cold War. You use that in the talk that you're giving with me right now, the conversation we're having. You use it in your book, Axis of Evil. Uh, talk to me. Give me a definition. Everybody is using that term, Cold War. Just help us, the lay people, understand what that term means. Well, when I was in the Cold War, I was on the demilitarized zone in Korea, and I looked at the North Koreans who wanted to kill me, and of course we would have retaliated in a similar fashion. They kept threatening us just as they do today. And I saw people that were killed and wounded in that environment. I also served for three years on the Iron Curtain at the Fulda Gap, the most intense place during the, the Iron Curtain where we had landmines, barbed wire, people would try to flee the east and would be shot down in cold blood as they did. I had an outpost there. I, of course, been in China and in Soviet Russia, seen firsthand those sorts of things. What a lot of people don't understand, especially those that are not old enough, Jimmy, is that for years and years, uh, beginning in the late 40s, and when we had the adversarial relationship with the Soviet Union called the Cold War, we went to bed at night wondering whether or not we were going to be fried by nuclear weapons by the morning. You know, many of us recall having air raid drills uh, as kids. Mm -hmm. There was one nuclear threat after another. There was, of course, psychologically, ideologically, uh, propaganda was flowing. There were proxy wars in Korea, in Vietnam, all over Africa, Central uh, Europe, certainly in the Caucasus. Russians were in yeah, Afghanistan well before we were. And it was a, a time of tragedy. It was a, a time of gulags, a time of forced confessions. Millions of people died. Uh, I mean, a, a, just a terrible series of decades, which if, and I do believe we're coming up to a new one, uh, it's going to be even worse than that was because of the, as I outline in my Alliance of Evil book, there's 16 very critical reasons. We talked about one at the beginning of this interview, and that was, you know, the alliance of Russia and China. And all the evidence, I mean, the evidence is phenomenal when you start to look at it. And, of course, that's what I do every day. I look at all this evidence, and I'm, there's no doubt in my mind that we're in a new Cold War. And even the CIA, after I published my book, they're beginning to say, yep, we're in a Cold War. The Europeans are saying, we're in a Cold War. Our allies in Asia are saying, we're in a Cold War. Well, it's on many fronts. We're in a Cold War economically. Just look at all the tariff wars going on. Uh, look at the investments around the world and the leverage. You know, we're in a cyber war. There's no question. Anybody that understands what cyber is doing and how it's threatening you know, the very infrastructure of the world you know, doesn't follow these things, certainly as closely as I do. We're in a war of uh, an arms race. Now, the old arms race was with nuclear weapons. And, of course, between us and the Russians, we own 90-plus percent of the nuclear weapons today. The difference is we're looking at new technologies like hypersonics. Hypersonics fly nap of the earth five to ten times the speed of sound, and they have precision a guidance so they can hit any target and they can evade any air defense system. This is what the Chinese and the Russians you know, are testing and have been successful, and we're kind of trailing behind. Uh, I mean, I can go into this. Obviously, I do. I write an entire book. But ideologically, I think, interestingly, we in the West, and rightly so, are painted 
as hedonistic, narcissistic, certainly becoming anti-Christian. And the Chinese and the Russians, interestingly, especially Vladimir Putin, is saying, look, to the Russian people, those people, they're amoral. They're abandoning God. The Russian Orthodox Church is cozy, very cozy with Vladimir Putin, Hmm. and they endorse him. Hmm. They call him uh, their savior uh, as a result of uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. He's resurrecting that country. And President Xi, you know, even though ideologically he suppresses his people and Thanks to Google, he can you know, control the Internet and do all sorts of things similar to Mao Zedong uh, behind the scenes. So when you look at those four battlefields, things are going to be much worse, I argue, in the future than they have been even during the old Cold War. So there are a host of things, and I don't want to go. I could do this for hours because, you know, I did write a book on it. Mm, absolutely. Boy, you brought back a memory to me. Elementary school when I was growing up and hiding under the desk because the Russians were going to attack. That was a part of that time. Do you think that uh, one of these wants to come out on top, either Russia or China, or are they really a team? Well, they will team. This time, China is clearly on top. Economically, China will be by 2030 or 35, the world's leading economy, unless something dramatic happens. And, of course, their military is very, very large, very sophisticated, copies everything we do, and is going well beyond that. Uh, Russia will be a second tier, but a partner, because what do they have? They have a lot of energy. China doesn't have a lot of energy, so it's a match made, quote, in heaven for them economically and strategically. The meeting they had this week you know, between Xi and Putin was the 15th that I'm aware of in the last four years. You don't find heads of states like that meeting together and their foreign ministers meet together, their generals meet together. They have been doing a host of things that are just sparking up the horizon, declaring that this is a new Cold War. America, wake up. Politically, here we are, but this is so into the prophetic scenario found in God's Word as well. Thank you so much, Bob. We'll talk again real soon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. Colonel Bob McGinnis, normally at the Pentagon. We catch him outside this time on the road. We're able to talk with him about a very important subject, a dual Cold War between Russia and China and the United States. Very interesting thoughts that Bob brought to the broadcast table. Well, Earlier in our conversations with our broadcast partner, we talked about some of the Jewish feasts, Rosh Hashanah, and I did talk with David Dolan about the fact of Yom Kippur and his experiences while covering the entire world of the Middle East for CBS Radio earlier in his experience there. And I've had some very unbelievable times on this very solemn day of Yom Kippur. Of course, that means we bring Steve Herzig, National Director of Friends of Israel, to this broadcast table. Steve, of course, we call you because of your connection to Orthodox Judaism. Before you came to know Christ as Lord and Savior, you were an Orthodox Jew. And the Holy Day, Yom Kippur, is a very solemn Holy Day for the Jewish people. Now, I would imagine you could tell us about some of your experiences, but just before you do that, explain to us what is Yom Kippur for those who may be listening, don't know much about Judaism. Well, Jimmy, Yom Kippur is the sixth of seven feasts from the book of Leviticus, 
And I often tease believers when I'm speaking that Leviticus is the book for most of them where the pages are still stuck together, but that if they would open them, it would open up the book of Hebrews, and it also would give them the program of God, which I believe these seven feasts speak about, the program of God as it relates to Israel. And the Yom Kippur is Day of Atonement. Last time you and I talked was over the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and this holiday is the really the, the time when, after 10 days of repentance, called the 10 days of awe in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, after, after people are evaluating their life, Jewish people, evaluating their last year's life and repenting and, and going to people and saying they're sorry, coming to God and saying they're sorry, trying to make things right, because the desire at Rosh Hashanah is, may your name be inscribed in the Book of Life. And it's at Yom Kippur that Jewish people believe their name will be either in the Book of Life or in the Book of Judgment. And that's a very solemn time, as you just said. And so that period of time, knowing that your year is going to be sealed one way or the other, is a uh, just really significant time. And so Jewish people are fasting during this time. They are contemplating God's judgment and what he's going to do. We so value, we Jewish people so value life, knowing that somebody could die of disease, somebody could die of murder, somebody could die of old age, somebody could get sick during the year. And they believe that it's all based on works uh, throughout the past year. So it's a very significant time from a Jewish point of view. And, of course, you just mentioned the fact that uh, these 24 hours, or I guess actually 25 hours of Yom Kippur, the Jewish people will be fasting. Now, that's what they're doing today. Uh, but in biblical times, the high priest, that's the day that, and the only day of the year that he would go into the Holy of Holies to offer a special sacrifice, correct? Yeah, you know, Jimmy, when you look at the book of Leviticus and look at the practice of, of Jewish people today, it's completely flip-flop. Let me explain why. In Leviticus chapter 16, God, through Moses, of course, tells us the function of what would take place during the Feast of Yom Kippur, and it's all priestly-centered. The people are on the outside. The priest is, is going through a number of things, including sacrifice, a bullock, and then two goats. Uh, one goat is the scapegoat. The other goat will be killed sacrifice, and everything revolves around the priest. It's his actions. It's the blood. It's the intercessory ministry. From a modern Jewish point of view, it's the individual. And Jewish people find the idea of an intercessor repugnant, the modern Jewish person. But Jimmy, as you know, it's so interesting that throughout Old Testament history, having an intercessor between God and the people is not out of the ordinary at all. Moses acted as an intercessory person. The priests act as an intercessory person. The tabernacle was a means of an intercessor, the building itself where God's presence was. So all these things are contrary to modern thinking. The Jewish people today think it's something they have to do, and they don't understand Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh and the blood. And that's a concept that you and I and our listeners have to be able to tactfully communicate whenever we can. And that will not come about, uh, the blood being offered in sacrifice, until the temple is back up, and that's what they long for today. 
even though they are doing it their own way, they would love to have a temple so the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, do they not? Oh, yeah. Once a year, that was his function. Such an important thing. They waited with bated breath as the high priest walked in alone, never sitting, standing, taking the blood and applying it to the mercy seat on the people's behalf. An incredible story and vision in an illustrative way for Jewish people then to see, totally different again today. The idea today is fasting, uh, pounding our hearts before God in the synagogue. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. They're sincere people who want their sins dealt with, and they believe so strongly that it's through something they could do, something they can say to appease God, to bring them to a healthy, happy year to be in the Book of Life. Now, it's a very solemn day, and everything is shut down in Israel. I've been there when during that 25 hours of Yom Kippur and the fast, the little children could ride their tricycles out in the main highways of the state of Israel. It's just entirely a unique situation, the entire state shutting down for Yom Kippur. But soon after that fast is over, they start preparing for the next feast day, which would be the Feast of Tabernacles. They start to put up their sukkahs. Explain that for our listeners. You know, you're right, Jimmy. As, as that most solemn day ends, as they break their fast in a, in a joyous time, Fast is broken. Usually family and friends gather together, but immediately uh, they begin to build the Sukkot because five days from Yom Kippur is the Feast of Tabernacles. The atmosphere entirely different. It's a harvest. It's a blessing. They go into the Sukkah and they, they eat a meal. Many of them sleep overnight. The idea of being reminded God's provision for them when they were in the wilderness. Total contrast to the most solemn day, Yom Kippur. Very, very important information that you, our listener, need to have about the Jewish people and them going through these fall feasts. We talked about Feast of Trumpets, now Yom Kippur, and then upcoming very quickly, the Feast of Tabernacles. Steve, it's always a joy to be able to talk with you at these seasons of the year and for your insights into Judaism around the world, and in particular, of course, a focus on the state of Israel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jimmy, it's always my joy to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have one more conversation I'll have with David James. Why are young people leaving the church? You don't want to miss that conversation. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, moving into our last half hour. One broadcast partner left to interview. We'll be talking with David James in a moment. He's going to be talking about the fact that millennials, today's young people, are moving away from the church and even from Christianity. Well, that is a part of our poll question, but I want you to stay tuned to hear what David has to say, some great research and exhortation to us, members of the local church. Speaking of the poll question, here it is. Do you believe that the millennials, today's young people, may be leaving the church and Christianity because the local church, your church, failed to train them in the Bible the many years that God allowed us to have them 
for that training. Now, that's a very thought-provoking poll question. Hope you'll answer it and answer it truthfully, and maybe it may be an exhortation for you and me and all the members of the local church to train up our young people in the Word of God. Make them solid in what God's plan for their life is today. Be sure to answer the poll question. It's found on my home page at my website, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column, you scroll down and you'll find it. We now bring to these microphones David James. He's at the broadcast table with me. We're going to have a very interesting discussion talking about why young ex-Christians are leaving the church. Keep the dial set right where it is. We'll get into that discussion in just a moment. But David, we're now under three months away from our December conference right here in Chattanooga. And once again, we'll be teaching two courses that should be very interesting for our students. For example, I'm going to continue my three-part approach to going through the entire Bible, all 66 books, and showing you where the prophetic passages are. Because Bible prophecy not only is the main focus a number of books, 17 to be exact, there in the Old Testament, I believe four or five as you look at the books pretty deeply in the New Testament, but all 66 books have prophetic passages in them. And I believe that anybody that is going to be awarded a Ph.D. in eschatology in time events, I believe they need to understand the entire Bible, all 66 books, and be able to take us to those prophetic passages and explain how they fit in to the overall scenario. So we'll go at second chapter of that, the three part of three chapters of the three sessions that we'll have. This is number two. We'll do that in December at our conference here in Chattanooga. But I think, David, I am really excited about what you're going to be doing. You're going to be so practical. Not that you're not practical with some of the theological or eschatological things, but, boy, this is going to be a very practical session. And for maybe even members of the churches, staff members around here in Chattanooga are the area within two or 300 miles, you can come in for that conference. Tell everybody what you're going to be doing at the conference, the SOP conference conference in December. Well, that's right. And as is true of our other conferences, it's not just for students in the School of Prophets. It's open to the general public. And in this particular course, it's called Basic Graphics and PowerPoint Design. And, you know, we, we really have, both of us have a heart for ministry and equipping people for ministry. And as we're teaching eschatology and, and all of these courses related to that to help people understand the Word of God better, I think it's important that we equip them to actually communicate it in an effective way. Unfortunately, uh, some Bible teachers and pastors, when they put together their PowerPoints, it's not exactly up to today's standards, and people in today's world are using to, used to seeing top-notch graphics, whether it be on the cable news networks or national commercials or anything like that. That's what people are used to seeing. So this course will be open to pastors, Bible teachers, secretaries who might be doing design, and it's not just PowerPoint design, but these same principles will apply to designing book covers, design 
designing brochures, tracks, anything that might involve any graphics design. And then we'll get into a few specific tricks of the trade when it comes to PowerPoint. So I'm looking forward to it. I've taught it in Philippines, Uganda, and here in the U.S. as well. And I think it'll be a great course. I do believe indeed it will be a great course. I'll probably be on the first row. But uh, I've got to think reality is going to set in to me. Uh, I'm an old dog, and it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. I can use that Bible, but uh, sometimes I have a different concept in mind that I can't communicate through technology. Well, it's going to be a great course. You people need to come and learn from that. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. On the home page, there's a rotating banner up top. Get all the information, the exact dates. That will be December 11, 12, and 13. And also the price and the location. And it's right here in Chattanooga. Love to have you come. Again, our website, prophecytoday.com. Now let's get to our discussion for this week, David. A couple of weeks ago, an article came out on the Town Hall website citing a Pew Research Center report concerning those who identify as religious nuns, not not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Talk to us about that. The title of the article is Why Young Ex-Christians Are Ex-Christians According to the Latest Research. And so the Research Center polled a growing group in America called Religious Nuns, as you noted. And uh, this group describes themselves as nothing in particular when asked to identify themselves with a specific religious group. And the vast majority are actually ex-Christians, and most are under the age of 35. So they asked them why they now reject any religious affiliation and provided the these respondents with six possible responses. Well, what are some of the findings in the report concerning why Christians, or maybe we should say church attenders, are leaving the church? Well, what they found was that there were several different reasons that were cited. Again, the respondents only had six choices, so they weren't able to fill in the blank of their own. So one was learning about evolution when I went away to college. Religion is the opiate of the people, which is actually a quote from Karl Marx. Rational thought makes religion go out the window. There's a lack of scientific support for the evidence of a creator. I just realized somewhere along the line I didn't really buy into it. And another was I'm doing a lot more studying and learning and making decisions for myself rather than listening to someone else. You know, interesting, very interesting, though, that the author of the article actually dug deeper into the issue and suggested that there was a deeper reason behind what is happening with young Christians. That's right. Actually, those six specific answers that they could choose from, those that they surveyed said that none of those were really the most important reason why they left the church. In fact, they didn't cite any of them as actually being very important. And what this author did, he went back to, I believe, was a 2016 study that showed the bottom line reason is that they don't believe that God exists at all. They don't believe that any of the teachings that they had heard or the stories that they had heard in Sunday school, they just didn't find them convincing. And so they basically walked away from the faith because they didn't have a foundation. So if these young Christians are losing their faith, and I would put losing their faith in quotes, when they get into the real world, what does that say about the state of many of our churches today? 
Well, I think that you and I have witnessed during our time in ministry, for you it's been a little bit longer than for me, but over the 34 years that I've been a Christian, I was saved at the age of 26. I think that what we're seeing is that young people are less and less equipped to go into the world, and I would say it's not just a problem with the churches in and of themselves, in that many of them are still doing the things that they did 30 years ago, but the world has changed dramatically. And so I don't know that uh, many of the churches, even our conservative evangelical churches, have kept up with the changing times and providing the kind of information and discipleship to these young people to prepare them to stand on their own two feet. So many things that were taken for granted even 20 to 30 or 40 years ago, like the existence of God, or even basic knowledge of Bible accounts, or having some kind of moral and ethical ethical foundation that was actually a part of society. We've become so pluralistic and so PC-oriented and so liberal socially that the world has left the church in the dust, and we just haven't kept up. David, would you say that maybe some of this is due to the many churches, especially some of the mega-churches, who are trying to compete with the world in terms of putting on a show and focusing on entertainment in order to appeal to more unbelievers? Well, I have certainly seen that, and it, it's not only megachurches. Churches like Willow Creek, which is a megachurch, they have influenced literally thousands and thousands of churches across the U.S. with the term they coined, I believe, back in the late 80s, early 90s, the seeker-sensitive model. The idea behind that was that they would preach messages and have the kind of music that would be appealing to unbelievers, and it would be a sort of a non-church church service. And I think what we're doing is we're reaping what we have sown on this in in a number of different ways. For one thing, in order to have Bible teaching that appeals to unbelievers, you have to be very careful about what you say about sin, about hell, the consequences of sin, accountability before God, and also you can't really get into the deeper meat of the Word of God, and so on Sunday mornings especially, there was a lot of milk of the Word being taught, at least to some degree, but it wasn't providing the true teaching of the Word of God, the deeper things that needed for believers. And beyond that, even though I'm certainly a strong proponent of evangelism, church is actually for believers. We can bring unbelievers in, and if unbelievers are there, we share the gospel with them. But I personally have the philosophy that church is for believers, and then we equip believers to evangelize their friends, family, neighbors, and co-workers. I agree. That is the pattern for the church, or should be the pattern found there in Acts 2 and also in Acts 5 as well. That's what they did then, which grew that first century church into at least what it is today. Well, as someone whose entire 30 years of ministry, David, has been focused on teaching this age group, do you have a few suggestions uh, for churches of any size concerning what they can do to prepare their youth for what they will face when they leave home? 
One of the first things that came to my mind, you know, our listeners are aware that I was with Word of Life Fellowship for 21 years. One of the ministries of Word of Life is Word of Life Bible Clubs in local churches, teaching local churches how to develop leadership and then disciple their young people in their churches. And they had a six-year cycle, and it was focused on the various areas of theology. So Word of Life was aimed at teaching young people theology from their, actually from their junior high years on. Another I thought was, we need Sunday school teachers who are really equipped to teach the Word of God, and not just warm bodies to fill an open slot. If the church uses prepared curriculum, they need to make sure it's thoroughly biblical and it goes deep enough. There's so much junk out there now that really doesn't go deep in the Word of God, and it's really not helpful. In some cases, it's not even biblical. And there are many resources out there for defending the faith. There are YouTube videos by apologists like Ravi Zacharias, and William Lane Craig and others for teaching about how to defend the faith, the existence of God. Ministries like Answers in Genesis have a lot of materials. The Truth Project is excellent. And I would say that maybe one quarter each year for teens in grades 9 through 12, they do an apologetic series in a different area, defending the faith, creationism, intelligent design, apparent contradictions in the Bible are just some examples. Teach them how to give answers. And, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, most evangelical pastors were preaching verse-by-verse expository sermons. I think we need to get back to that and not just preach topical and felt-need sermons. And we must always remember that it's a sin to bore people with the Word of God. So we teach the Word of God correctly, and we teach it enthusiastically, and we get young people excited about knowing and serving the Lord. Wow, David, that was very excellent. Some great suggestions for the church, and especially how to deal with and bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord your young people in the church. That was excellent. You may want to go back, re-listen. David went pretty quickly through there. You can slow it down, play it back over again if you want to. Prophecytoday.com is the place to go and listen to the conversation that David James and I had today. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. That was a great time. We'll have another one next week. Thanks, Jimmy. I look forward to it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to go to the book. David exhorted us. What does the book say? The Bible. We'll go and take a look at the book all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. 
Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had some great reports from our broadcast partners. These men stationed across the world, and we go to them to find out the information behind the headlines, details, insight into what the news media is reporting. We see how that fits into the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, and we get all the information needed to understand this current event from our broadcast partners. We're so thankful for these men who give us these reports. By the way, if you missed any of the reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and be sure to tell a friend that they can go to that same location and hear all that our broadcast partners brought to this broadcast table. It's key if you're going to be a student of Bible prophecy to understand this insight. Now, though, let me give you a prophetic perspective on the news this week. Ken Temmerman was in southern France there from his vantage point. We were looking at Russia holding right now today the largest military exercises since the early 80s, since the Cold War era. And Russia has invited China and Mongolia to join them. Ezekiel chapter 38 talks about Russia when it refers to Magog, and then China would be included in the kings of the east, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. Now, Ezekiel 38, the first six months of the tribulation period, and China, part of the kings of the east, the last six months of the seven-year tribulation period. These passages of Scripture deal with these two major nations who are coming together, and they are involved in setting up what is going to be a scenario that the ancient Jewish prophets talked about many, many years ago through Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel and through John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. And then David Dolan and I, we were able to give you his Middle East news update through my conversation with David. We talked about 20 years ago and the Oslo Accords. We were both reflecting on how we were there at the government press office in Jerusalem when the Oslo Accords were signed at the White House. The major players, President Clinton, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of Israel, and, of course, Yasser Arafat, chairman of the PLO. 
It's a failed peace agreement. But I do believe that is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Remember Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And that verse says, and he, that's referring to the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant, there's the peace treaty, with many for one week. And there is the idea of the fact that there will be a pseudo-peace in the very near future. I'm talking about in the beginning of the tribulation period. In fact, when the Antichrist confirms, not signs, but simply confirms, strengthens, makes stronger, the peace treaties on the table, the Camp David Accord between Israel and Egypt, the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians, which we're talking about, and also the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan, the Antichrist will confirm that, not sign it, confirm it, and that will mark the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Peace possible, but it's going to be a pseudo-peace. And then John Root and I talked about the European Union. He updates us on the European Union on a weekly basis, so glad to have him along. We were talking today, uh, the question was asked, will Brexit fail to save the European Union? If indeed the European Union allows Great Britain to withdraw from the membership in the European Union, that could start a domino effect. Many other member states could pull out as well. The Bible talks about not 29 member states, which is what it is today, but 10 10 kingdoms, 10 regions, 10 units of some type. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. It's talking about the appearance of the revived Roman Empire. Remember verse 7? Talking about the Roman Empire with 10 horns. 10 horns representing the revived Roman Empire. That's more informative to us when you read chapter 7, verses 23 and 24, a commentary on verse 7. Verse 8 talks about the Antichrist appearing. Remember the Antichrist, the one confirming the peace treaty. Uh, that will start the clock ticking on the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church, the formation of the revived Roman Empire, the appearance of the Antichrist, and then the confirmation of that peace treaty. Colonel Bob McGinnis, who works his day job at the Pentagon, talked to us about the unbelievable massive, massive military exercise that's going on in Russia today. Vladimir Putin invited China and Mongolia to join in this military exercise. We're moving into a dual Cold War, one between the United States and Russia, the other between the United States and China. You know, Jesus Christ talked about wars and rumors of wars. That would be the second indicator. Matthew chapter 24 in verses 4, 5, 11, and 24 talks about deception as the first indication that we would be in the tribulation period. And it was a warning to those, for those who will not be Christians and may be going into that period. Well, Matthew 24 verses 6 and 7 talks about wars and rumors of wars. Fits right into my discussion with Colonel Bob McGinnis. And David James, we talked about why millennials are leaving the church. Young people, uh, between 17 years of age and 31 years of age, why are they leaving the church? They're departing maybe 
because they knew not what God's Word was teaching them, how to understand and have a biblical worldview. It's a very good discussion. You want to re-listen to what David James had to say, and he had some particular suggestions for the church and how could they train up their millennials. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. All of these conversations will be there for you to re-listen to if you would like to do that. I must remind you, my dear friend, everything that I have talked about when we've taken this look at the book, all the issues have basically been revealing to us a precursor for the rapture of the church, which is the next event on God's calendar of activities. And that rapture could actually happen today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.